This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. The clock is now ticking for the campers down in Oppenheimer Park. That's where that tent city has been uh, situated for months now in the downtown east side. Just seems to be getting bigger as well. There's an estimated 200 people down there, maybe, maybe more, more or less. 200 people, where are they supposed to go? Well, the Vancouver Park Board has said you got to get out of there. And you've got until 6 p.m. this Wednesday to vacate. So they are being evicted from Oppenheimer Park. Now, there's already some resistance. Some of the residents down there are saying they got nowhere else to go. Uh, the city is saying we got 100 units of housing available uh, to put people. Well, if there's 200 or maybe even up to 240 people living down there, maybe that's not enough housing to house everybody. So what is going to happen? Hopefully, hopefully, there is a peaceful resolution to the situation. There are some people down there who are looking for trouble. That's for sure. I mean, look, there are legitimate, very poor homeless people down there, but there's also some people trying to make a point. I think there's some criminal elements down there as well. We heard that directly from some of the residents uh, in the park on the show today. So here's your hot question of the day. The Vancouver Park Board has ordered over 200 homeless people camping in Oppenheimer Park to leave by 6 p.m. this Wednesday. Do you agree with the forced eviction? Would you say, yes, they have to be removed? This is a park not a campsite or would you say no where are they supposed to go maybe you should just let them stay there here's how you vote on this today at cknw on twitter that's where you'll find the hot question of the day at cknw on twitter please give me a follow while you're there today at mike smith news on twitter s m y t h mike smith news on twitter i will retweet the hot question of the day so you'll find it there as well give me a call on the buzz line on this one today all right 604-331-BUZZ is the number to call that's 604-331-2899 you can leave your vote there as well and also just leave me a voicemail there and tell me what you think should the oppenheimer park campers be forced to be kicked out of the park at 6 p.m this wednesday Yes or no, 604-331-2899 is the number to leave me a voicemail there on the buzz line. At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote online in our hot question of the day. Let's talk about the situation with the tent city down in Oppenheimer Park in the downtown east side. 6 p.m. on Wednesday. That is the deadline that the Vancouver Park Board has given to more than 200 people camping out in Oppenheimer Park. They have to get out. The eviction notice has been issued. The evictions have been scheduled. 6 p.m. this Wednesday. BC Housing says they have more than 100 units of safe, stable housing available for the people in the park. Well, of course, the people in the park are saying, we got more people here than you got units. Could this be lead to some problems down there? In a news release, the city says safety is the key at the park. They say there have been 17 fires there since February. This has been going on for months. One of the women living down there, her name is Yesterday House. Yeah, that's her name, Yesterday House. She's been living in a, in a tent at Oppenheimer Park with her husband. She says she's been there for over three weeks, and she was forced out of an SRO, a single-room occupancy hotel, due to the unlivable and dangerous conditions there. Yesterday, she told her own Nikki Reitmeyer that two unidentified women, probably volunteers as social workers, told her that they would help her, find, help her to get help, but she hasn't seen them in weeks. Have a listen. I live in a SRO, and um, it's so hot in there. I leave my door open so the air can flow. So I was sleeping, and someone came in my room and stole my my cell phone, my uh, backpack, 
All my medication, I have two puffers. I got an EpiPen and I'm on medication for because um, I had like pain here. Stole that. Everything in, I, I, I own, I carry around in my backpack. And um, so I told the staff, I went running down and told the staff. And uh, they looked at the camera and they found out who it was and made fun of me. They laughed at me. I've never been back. Haven't been back since. You know, that's supposed to be my safe, that's supposed to be my safe place. So I haven't been back since. And that's why I'm here. I don't do drugs, and that's true. I, I got no reason to lie. Sorry, it's really emotional. I can't afford, you know, I can't afford another cell phone for a while. It, 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 it hurts. You know, they know who did it, and they looked at each other and laughed, and I've never been back since. I've been outside. If the city comes in today with the promise of moving people into social housing, would you go with them? If it's a good place. Like, we don't do drugs. They put us in places where people yell and scream in a hallway, sit there all drugged up. And they even fight and stab each other in the SROs anyway. Like, there's really no difference, like, you know? I haven't been back since, but these ladies did say they were going to help me. They did say they were going to move me somewhere. I haven't seen them since. Do you trust them when they say that? I do because that lady had tears in her eyes when I told her what happened. So she believes me, you know. I have no reason to lie to anybody. I wouldn't never live this long if I was a liar. Especially being on the downtown east side, you lie, you're out. Everyone's going to know it, you know? Yesterday, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And I hope people hear, like, this is the truth. Like, there are people here that don't want to have a home. They want they, they, they want to shoot up. They want to stab each other, shoot each other. And there's people like me that would love to have a home. Like, I have all kinds of appliances you can stick into the wall to cook, because I love to cook. I haven't cooked for over three... It's going to be a month, actually, that I haven't been over there. But, like, someone needs to care. You know, we used to work, you know. We paid our taxes. So that's pretty much... I can't help it. Wow, boy, that's really, that's touching stuff. That's very moving stuff. That is Yesterday House. That is her name. She lives in a tent at Oppenheimer Park. She lives there with her husband. She was talking to her own Nikki Reitmeyer there. You heard her story there about us. You said she had been living in an SRO hotel in the downtown east side, and she left there. She said it was dangerous and unlivable. She's been down at Oppenheimer Park for a few weeks. The residents of the tent city there now facing an eviction deadline, 6 p.m. this Wednesday. Uh, that's when the campers in the park are expected to vacate, according to an order by the Vancouver Park Board. Let's go down to Oppenheimer Park right now. Global News reporter Emily Lazatin is there. I'm pleased she could take some time. Hi, Emily. Hi, Mike. What's going on down there right now? Um, you know, I've been walking through the park for about an hour now. Um, we have BC Outreach Work, BC Housing here. Um, the city's outreach workers are here. I see them going um, from tent to tent, asking people if they're willing to accept some help. Of course, like you said, that is in the form of an SRO. Um, they were handed down their eviction notices this morning. They're to be out by 6 p.m. And with talking to a lot of people uh, and hearing that clip of yesterday, that that's really what we're hearing here. Some people really want the help, but some people don't because many people here have dogs. I'm seeing dogs running through parks. I just spoke to one woman who has three uh, small puppies, and she's not willing to give them up. 
She's saying that she's not going to fit the criteria because she can't take her dogs with her, and she would rather stay homeless. Do they have any uh, facilities where people can take their dog, or are all the units available that the Vancouver Park Board is talking about? Are they all are they all banned for dogs and pets? I'm not sure on that part. I know the woman I spoke to is she was given I think a few options over the past couple months, and none of them suited, I guess, her living options, which was to fit her three dogs. And she said no. So she was willing to take take help over the last couple months. But on the stipulation that she would have, she could take her three dogs. And that, that was a no to her. Many also, the same story we hear a lot is many of these people don't want to go into SROs because they're dirty. They don't trust the people there. They'd rather have, they'd rather have and live in their tent where all their belongings are. They get watch over it. And a lot of people are saying this park and my tent are much cleaner than moving into an SRO. Yeah, you hear that often. It's, uh, I've been to several of these tent cities over the years because they just seem to spring up uh, continually in different communities, and that's a constant refrain that you hear from people. They'd rather stay in these tent cities because they consider them to be safer uh, than some of the other shelter spots that they've they've been offered. But, I mean, if you've got an eviction notice there at 6 p.m., do people have any choice? I mean, they you know, the park board is saying they got to leave, right? They don't have any option. The park board is saying they have to leave. Yeah. Um, you are violating bylaws. Those bylaws are you obviously, you obviously can't t- set up a tent in a park. Uh, sometimes there's open burning here. So it is a yeah. big safety issue. And the one question I am asking a lot of people is the people who aren't willing to accept the help, who don't want to move into an SR, is what are you going to do? And right. their answer is, I don't know. I'll figure that out in the next couple of days. But if I can't, uh, you know, I can't take my dog or if I can't take this with me, then I'd rather not move into an SRO. Okay, we've heard the Vancouver Park Board also say that safety is a top priority for them as well. So some people may be saying it's unsafe uh, to go into a shelter or an SRO hotel room, but the Park Board is saying that safety is a consideration down there at Oppenheimer Park right now with open burning, like you said, it's a fire hazard. Mm-hmm. We've heard some stories of some violence. People down there maybe yes. have got some uh, threatening or they've got some weapons down there. Are you hearing any stories like that? Well, I I, I witnessed it this morning. I, you wow. know, it's not always calm here, right? You know, there are people who are very friendly with each other. There are people who already were getting into arguments this morning just about trivial things, um, their belongings and whatnot. So there is a bit of that. And yes, as you said, we've heard um, stories about open burning, violence. That obviously is a, is a constant issue here. Uh, the police officers actually probably have tripled since I've gotten here in the last hour and a half. Um, but they're just here. They are talking to people. Uh, when BPD emailed me this morning, they said it was, I guess, work as usual. They weren't upping their manpower or anything like that. They're just here to make sure that everything remains calm, uh, like they usually do. And uh, I see park rangers here, Vancouver, some people from Vancouver Fire are here. Uh, but uh, right now what I see is BC Housing. They are starting to take belongings, actually, out of people's tents. So I do, I'm thinking that these are the people who are accepting help. I see clothes being packed into blue bins here and uh, people's names being put on them. And I just asked somebody before we got on the line uh, what are in those uh, blue bins, and they said people's belongings. Emily, is anyone down there complaining about the, the time frame here? I mean, people are being given effectively three days' notice to get out. Is anyone saying, like, you could have given us a bit more time to get our, get our act together here? Yeah, the, person, the first person I spoke to this morning, I arrived, I think, around 9, 9.10, and the eviction notices were handed at 9 o'clock, said to me, why can't we have 30 days? to figure it out. Uh, why two days is not enough. What if I don't want to go to into an SRO? I've got to find another place to set up shop or set up tent here. Um, so many people think two days is not enough. Also, the big question is for the people who do want help, if there are more people than there are rooms, they're wondering where they're going to be put. Because the city has sent out um, information in the past and they're speaking to the, I think they're saying they have 100 spaces in the forms of SROs and other housing in the city. But what if more than there's about a couple hundred people here, maybe? And what if more than 100 people want housing? Where are they going to put the remainder? We continue to follow it very closely. Emily, thanks for coming on. Thank you.
That's Emily Lazatin, Global News reporter. She is speaking to us live there from Oppenheimer Park. The politics here heating up with an election coming at you in October. The latest on the SNC-Lavalin scandal. It has not been a good week for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau after he was found guilty of contravening the Federal Conflict of Interest Act in the SNC-Lavalin affair. Today, his political enemy, uh, Andrew Scheer, leader of the federal Green Party, doubling down today on his calls for the RCMP to get involved. He is demanding an RCMP investigation of the prime minister and the people in his office. Let's talk about this now with Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Hey, Keith. Hey, buddy. Okay, let's talk about this situation now. You got Scheer uh, really going after Trudeau on this one now. Obviously wants to make this a central part of an election campaign coming up in October corruption truth in government uh politicians who were liars in his words right i noticed when he did his news conference today he had a big placard in front of his podium and it said honest government this is what he's going to promise the people of canada is this is a good issue for sure potentially it is i think he's going to try to make this campaign a de facto referendum on justin trudeau's ethics and moral compass yeah. And I think he's got a considerable ammunition to work with. Whether or not that becomes the ballot box question is very much an open question. I'm not convinced it is. But uh, the the ground is fertile enough for Sheer to make this the ballot box question. The question is, is this the type of issue that resonates with voters more than, say, economic issues, pocketbook issues, uh, even issues such as relatively new ones, such as uh, climate change, which I think Trudeau and the New Democrats and it's, the Greens are going to focus it's on. It's obviously bad for Trudeau. I mean, the report by the federal ethics commissioner doesn't necessarily come with any direct penalties no. against Trudeau. I mean, it's more like a verbal tongue lashing. Mm -hmm. But the political cost could be high if people decide maybe I've I was distrustful of this guy well, to start with, and this pushes me over the head. I'm uh, well, over the over the edge. I'm not voting for him. I'll be shocked if the Conservatives or the NDP or both don't produce an ad that says the Prime Minister broke the law, and they air that over and over again. You go back to the 2017 election here in British Columbia, the NDP effectively won that election on two issues. One was affordability. The other one was a relentless negative ad campaign against Christy Clark and against her integrity and labeling her corrupt and showering her with cash. Now, this is not the same situation. Justin Trudeau did not profit personally from this particular situation. But uh, the NDP was able to make an effective campaign on the issue of corruption and and ethics in 2017. Now, it remains to be seen whether that can be done on the federal stage on this particular issue. But as I say, I think right now we advantage conservatives, but the liberals still have a lot of weapons they can but you're But you're still not certain, though, whether this is a, a fatal wound here no. for Trudeau. And I encourage people to follow you on Twitter because you're like the king of BC <laughs> politics on Twitter. How many followers you got on oh, there now? 35,000 or something. It's ridiculous. But, 35,000, uh, my God. Okay, you put out a tweet the other day that got everybody hot yeah. and bothered. You said that... You tell me what you said in the I tweet. said I just come back from the dog park here in Victoria with 20 people and raised the issue of SNC-Lavalin. Nobody was paying attention. And I did that sort of somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but also to make the point that... It's August. It's summer. People don't pay attention to politics. Also, that Twitter does not drive public opinion. Twitter is a cesspool of partisanship, and there's a lot of people going at it each, uh, all the time on Twitter, particularly on this issue. The partisans come out on both sides. And, but I wanted to make the point that this is not an issue yet. I don't see any evidence yet that this is some sort of killer issue for the liberals, uh, although it remains to be a potentially great one for the conservatives. But I'm not convinced it's there yet. We're not in the campaign. The campaign doesn't begin for at least a few more weeks, and it's uh, it remains to be seen whether this is going to be the ballot box question for people, whether it's going to be climate change, whether it's going to be taxes, whether it's going to be uh, any economic pocketbook issues. I think the, the field is wide open for issues right now, and I wouldn't put it in the bank that this is the killer one. Okay, the point on your tweet was, if they're not talking about it down at the dog park, <laughs> then that's a, you know, a potential litmus test for whether it's going to be a ballot box issue in an election. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, I... Uh 
people say, where where do you get your information sometimes, or, or your your finger on the pulse of public opinion? I maintain it's in Thrifty's uh, produce section here, and when I go shopping, when I talk to normal people, normal people walking their dogs, not the partisans you and I come across every day, whether it's on Twitter, social media, or just as we go around our uh, along our jobs as, as journalists. It's regular folks, and regular folks don't pay attention to politics as much as uh, a lot of people like to think. Okay, I will agree with you to this extent that I think, in my experience, the most damaging scandals that we've seen in politics are typically ones that if you catch a politician red-handed lining his own pockets, like stealing money and putting money into his own pocket, that to me is deadly. Or if you have one where the public's money is being wasted, people can't stand that. And especially if it's on something that is easy to understand, like Bev Oda's $16 glass of orange juice or the $5,000 wood splitter down here at the BC legislature, that drives people up the wall. That's very damaging. When you get into this scandal, SNC-Lavalin, which is kind of complex and, I don't know, somewhat esoteric to an extent, do you think that that's makes it more difficult for say like a guy like Shear to get some traction on it. Oh I I think it I think it is more difficult because I, as again you say it's esoteric I think there is a an element of mystery to this thing that doesn't play out in people's daily lives. They can understand a $16 glass of orange juice. Uh they can understand $5,000 on a wood splitter. Understanding the deferred public prosecution process yeah. is something that a lot of people just they don't care about or they don't get their heads around it, and they don't think through the very complex legalities that are accompany these types of things. And so it's it's not an issue of a politician gaining personal gain for this. It's a, it's a process argument, and those are traditionally much harder, I think, to turn into a effective election issues come the campaign than other ones. That are, you know, the rule of thumb is you can you can get a ton of political hurt from a misspending a relatively small amount of money yeah. versus spending a misspending a lot of money but people don't understand the situation so i think this this may fall into that category so maybe a ballot box question i'm not convinced it is yet i think a lot of stuff has to happen first okay that said this thing is outrageous it does stink to high heaven i mean people got to remember some of the context of this scandal right I mean, we were talking about uh, a prime minister and a prime minister's office that were help trying to get this company off the hook of some serious criminal corruption charges. And this is a company that has had a history of scandal itself. I mean, we're talking about paying bribes to the regime of Muammar Gaddafi, right? One of the most disgusting dictators the world has seen recently. I mean, we had stories of like, you know, money being spent to buy prostitutes for his son and all kinds of crazy stuff. And you've got a prime minister and his staff bending over backwards to help them. And this report that came out on Trudeau, came out in Trudeau last week had some new interesting revelations about just how far they went mm -hmm. to try and help this company get off the hook of these criminal charges. That to me is outrageous and it's disgusting. And I think it should anger people. I guess the question is just how angry are people going to get? Well, how angry they're going to get and whether they're going to vote, go somewhere else with their votes. I mean, are people who voted for Justin Trudeau in, in 2015 going to vote for Andrew Scheer? Once Scheer's policies and differences come into view, I think the chances of that happening lessen as the campaign goes on. There is a chance, you know, a lot of pollsters pick up on this, that perhaps the Green Party could be the main beneficiary of this, of, of people who are, who are disengaged or, or disillusioned with Trudeau as a result of this are not prepared to vote for Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives because that's a complete philosophical opposite of what they've been supporting for up until now. So maybe they look for the shiny new toy, which is the Green Party, which has no... You know, no track record in terms of something like this has clean hands on pretty well every issue, and maybe that's where they park their vote. Trudeau can obviously win again this okay. election. Yeah, I mean, I it, it, before this story bro broke, or before the ethics commissioner report came in, I mean, they were ahead of the polls in ter in uh, uh, both Ontario and Quebec. That's where the seats are, Metro Metro Toronto, and that was enough, to, I think, to, for him to win the election. Now, does that change now as a result of this of this report? Maybe a little bit, but I think as we get into the campaign in September, public opinion will start shifting along traditional lines, and I think it's uh, again his to lose. I suspect we'll talk again at that so. time. Thanks a lot for coming in. That's Keith Baldry. He's the Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. All right, here we go now with the latest on the Jihadi Jack saga. Jack Letts, 
He's the British-Canadian man who traveled to Syria to join ISIS fighters in 2014. He was captured by Kurdish forces there. He's been in a prison in northern Syria ever since. What should be done with this guy? He wants to return now to the UK or to Canada. But look what the British have done now. They just stripped Jihadi Jack, as he's known there, of his British citizenship. Canada is not happy about that. It looks like the Brits just want to jump, uh, dump this guy in our laps now. Let's talk about this incredible story now with Stephanie Carvin. She's Assistant Professor of International Relations at Carleton University. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hello. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think about what the, the Brits have done here in stripping this guy of his citizenship? Can they do that? Is that legal? Well, yeah, I mean, there was a big controversy about that here in Canada a few years ago. And, you know, hence the famous line, a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, which is, you know, I I mean, I I think it's it's actually uh, kind of a reasonable approach, something, you know, that I think mature countries take is, you know, you actually have to do something about your own citizens. In the UK, however, they don't have a Charter of Rights and Citizens or even a Bill of Rights or anything like that. So they don't have the legal... um, uh, opposition to stripping people of their citizenship. Now, you're not supposed to make uh, individuals stateless. There are, there are some laws right. about that, but their argument is that he's actually a Canadian citizen, therefore we can strip him of British citizenship, and now Canada, he's your problem. So um, <laughs> what do we think of this? Well, it's um, it was not a nice treat, I think, for probably the Global Affairs Canada or the Prime Minister to wake up to when they, when they heard the news. Um, and certainly foreign fighters and repatriating them has been a very difficult conversation we've had in Canada. It's certainly been that way in the in the United Kingdom. But kind of dumping on this on, on Canada was not a very friendly thing to do. Yeah, like thanks a lot, Boris Johnson, right? Is this what we're going to have to deal with with Bojo now, the new UK prime minister? That's not very nice. Well, yeah, and I think this is this is one of the things you worry about. But also, you know, I'm not sure this was a great move on his part simply because you know, Britain, we don't know where it's going with its whole Brexit process, which is a whole other conversation. But, um, you know, one of the things Britain's doing is it's looking to Canada um, as one of its major partners once it leaves the European Union, if it in fact does that. Just as an example, uh, the United Kingdom has actually doubled the number of staff it has in its Ottawa embassy, um, you know, because that's how much importance it's putting on the relationship. So for it to turn around and suddenly do something like this, it doesn't necessarily put the relationship, I would say, in jeopardy, but it kind of, I think, it's definitely got a lot of attention, and hence we're talking about it here on the radio. And I don't think the kind of attention that people hoping to foster relationships between uh, a relationship between the two countries further uh, in the wake of Brexit would, would hope for. Okay, you mentioned that it's against international law for to leave someone stateless. So now that the Brits have stripped him of British citizenship, he's still a Canadian citizen. So I guess that means what we we can't strip him too. Like, could we do the same thing, or that would that would be against international law for us to do it? Because then he wouldn't have any citizenship, right? Right, exactly. And so yeah. we can do, but also, I mean, um, this was an issue in the, in the 2015 uh, election campaign. The, the Harper government, uh, when it was in power, it, it passed legislation, uh, or at least proposed legislation that would actually take away individual citizenship if they had dual nationality. So we were actually doing the same kind of thing uh, that the Brits were doing. Uh, the Trudeau government came in and said, no, that's, that's not our approach. And, you know, if a Canadian citizen commits an offense, we will prosecute them and we will handle them. Um, as a part of of our government, and I think that's actually um, I mean I'm biased. I mean, look, if I if I it's not a, it's not an easy sell. Let me put it that way. Like I'm, I'm sure your yeah. listeners are like pulling their hair out, saying like, who is this academic saying us saying we should bring all our terrorists back? But I mean, there there's good reasons for us to do so. It's um, the fact is. The, there's about 35, 36 maybe now with uh, Jack Letts, uh individuals who are over in Syria who are known to be Canadian. About right. four or five of those individuals, I believe, are considered to have been foreign fighters. The rest are um, uh, women um, who may actually have also supported, so we don't want to just assume they're innocent. But the vast majority of them are children under the age of five who are there okay. for no uh, reason um, other than their parents made very bad life choices. And so I think, you know, it, it, we have to sit there and think, okay, is this the best environment for the children who's, for them to be in, in, in right. basically a Kurdish uh, camp where you have ISIS, hardcore ISIS individuals who are in these camps trying to recruit, 
trying to do bad things. You have people who are probably trying to exploit these children in these camps as well. It's, it's a really bad situation. And uh, I think Canada, we just have to step up and be mature and start thinking about ways we can bring people back, not to just let them go stock free. We want to prosecute them. Right. But, you know, just the situation is, you know, it's, it, we, it can't stay like this. Something's going to have to be done. Speaking to Stephanie Carvin from Carleton University about the jihadi Jack story, do we have to take him back now? Is that the bottom line or can we just let him sit, sit over there and rot in that jail over there? Good question. So I tried to explain why we should. So the actual situation on the ground that um, uh, the, the, the Minister of Public Safety, Ralph Goodale, and Global Affairs Canada, their line is that, you know, we, if you get yourself arrested in a prison, and it doesn't matter if you're in Syria or the Philippines, wherever the heck you are, Global Affairs Canada is under no obligation to help you get out of jail. Right, right? right. So if you're stuck in a, in a Kurdish prison, there is actually no obligation for them to try and get you out. Now, if somehow you do manage to get out and you do somehow manage to get to a Canadian consulate or an embassy or a high commission or whatever, the Canadian government has to give you a travel document. They don't actually have to give you a passport. They can give you a piece of paper that says, you know, admit one to Canada. And then they, they, they but they have to give you the ability to get back. But you have to get yourself to the consulate in order to do that. So that's um, basically what they're saying right now. So that's why we haven't actually seen a large number of moves well, uh, I, to repatriate these people. I imagine, with an, especially with an election coming up in the fall, I mean, the, I think the last thing the Liberals want to do is bring this guy back to Canada. It's just a natural, you know, Andrew Scheer, the Conservative leader, has already attacked them for being soft on these on, on these foreign fighters. So I don't think the there's any chance Canada would bring this guy back anytime soon. Would you agree? I would totally agree with that. I I don't certainly expect anything to happen at least at the very earliest until the end of this year. Um, Unless I I think the major difference would be if the RCMP was able to somehow successfully bring criminal charges against these individuals and these individuals came back and were subsequently charged and put in prison. That might be one exception. And actually I think it might help the liberals because it would actually show that they're uh, taking steps in, in, in this regard. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't, and I think this is part of the frustration that the government has right now is like, you know, Boris Johnson has given the liberal government this lovely presence in the middle, yeah. <laughs> in the right before a, a federal election. And most Canadians, I think, you know, and, and I just, I don't want to, you know, I've made some kind of points here. I get why people are kind of concerned about these individuals. We, we worry. Um, there's, you know, the evidence on the behavior of foreign fighters suggests that they're actually less likely to engage in an attack once they return home. However, if they do decide to get into an attack, their attacks can be up to seven times more lethal than that of a homegrown violent extremist because they've probably had some kind of military training. So, well, you know, it is... It is, it is a pretty scary thing, and we have to be careful with how we go forward, no matter what we do. Last question for you. What should we say to the U.K. about this? I mean, this is, like you said, this is very not, not a nice thing at all for them to do this, dumping this in our laps. What should Canada's, what should Canada's response to the U.K. be? Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, one of the responses I saw was that, you know, once uh, the U.K. leaves Brexit, they want to enter into a free trade negotiation with Canada. Maybe we just uh, take our sweet time with that (laughs) and remind them, oh, well, you know, we're so busy dealing with all these foreign fighters you dumped on us that, you know, we just can't possibly get involved in free trade negotiations right now. Um, I don't know if that'll happen. Uh, It would be pretty dramatic. But, I mean, we've made a pretty strong statement already. We're basically implying the U.K. government has dumped this problem on Canada. Um, that has been picked up in the UK press. It, it, it doesn't look very good. I'm not sure really, though, what we could do that would make a tangible difference. The UK, no matter what, is still one of our most important uh, strategic and intelligence allies. We don't want to get them too mad at us. Thanks for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. All right, that is Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor, International Relations at Carleton University. Let's keep talking about the situation down at Oppenheimer Park now in the downtown east side. You got the tent city has been there for months now. There's over 200 people there. This is a big tent city down there now. But now the clock is ticking. 6 p.m. this Wednesday. That's the deadline that the general manager of the Vancouver Park Board has given to the people down at that homeless camp in Oppenheimer Park to get out. They have been issued a formal eviction notice. BC Housing says they're willing to help. They say they've got 100 units of safe, stable housing available for people who are living down in the park now. 
Of course, that's not as many as the people who are down there. Over 200, it appears. In a news release, the city says the safety of the people in the park is the key consideration there. They say there have been 17 fires at the Oppenheimer Park, Tenth City, since February. Our own Claire Allen has been talking to a couple named Jennifer and Eric. They've been living in Oppenheimer Park for about four months. They say they earlier stayed in an SRO hotel. They say it wasn't very nice. Have a listen. It's like jail. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. you got to live with like inmates and all of their problems. And they're out free doing whatever they want, trash in the buildings. You know, and you're scared to even leave your own your own suite, you know. Your own room. Or even to let, you won't even let me stay there by myself. That's how scary it is. Here. I, I'd rather have her here than yeah, me. And so today, I know that the city said that they are serving eviction notices. Yeah, yeah sure, so, I have one. So this is the notice that you got from the city? Yeah, this morning. And so what did you think when sure. you saw that notice today where are they gonna put all these people they should have done it like a month ago it's like as a like a landlord it should have been done 30 days ago and not today right right and what do you think about the off what they're saying is about offering housing uh, they always say that they just want to get people out of here and but they don't and then pe- some people don't even go right because they just want to stay out here but if people who want to go, then they'll go, but it won't Pretty be sure it. Pretty sure half these people aren't even going to leave. Be but they, they threw all their tents out, though, with all their prolonging, so it's like, like a straight-up evicting. They evicted. done that last month with this, this family right here. They took their whole their whole life was it gone within, like, two seconds. They weren't allowed to have their stuff in a storage tent, so they took all of it and shredded it all in front of everybody. Like, it was awful. <laughs> lady was crying it was just i think the government sucks (laughs) the threat of losing everything that you guys have is must be terrifying we started from nothing right when i we i got kicked out of my house because my sister kicked me out and then i well we ended up homeless and it was just awful but we're trying to find a place in vancouver is very very hard and expensive so expensive expensive. right it's like i got a full-time job and i still can't afford the rent Really it's like I, I'd be able to make the rent, but I wouldn't be able to feed us. Yeah. You know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. So Wednesday, 6 p.m. is uh, is the deadline. What do you guys think is going to happen on Wednesday? I'll ask Jenny, you first. Uh, I'm not sure. It's going to be hectic and crazy all day long, especially when everybody gets paid. Everybody's going to be drunk and welfare rowdy. Day, yeah. It's going to be cop. It is welfare day on Wednesday. It's like that's when they want everybody out on welfare day. Half the people are going to have their money, but they're going to be drinking and doing their drugs. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to be paying attention. Nobody's like like I pass. said, they should have done this like a month ago instead of doing it like two days prior to oh. everybody leaving. Right. right. And so if you don't mind me asking, what's your plan for Wednesday? What are you guys thinking as for a couple, Wednesday, what you're going to do? Like, I'm hoping we get a place with... Carnegie Outreach. They, they are working on it full time for us to get into housing. So that did not stress so much, but they're going to bug housing all this time until we get a place. But, but if, if not, we got to put our stuff at a friend's place. Yeah, so I don't want to use their storage. It's like, I don't know. No, like, I wouldn't be able to get into it. You mm-hmm. could have been using it. You, yeah, you wouldn't take a shower, but you got to go to their storage unit, right? But how often they're going to be open? No, we're going to have to lug a bag around. We're going to be homeless, homeless. What is it like here at Oppenheimer Park at nighttime? Because I know you said the SRO is dangerous. Some people think it's dangerous here, but I don't know. So I'm here. It's nice and quiet sometimes, but with some rowdies, like in little spots, you can hear them, but not really. But at night, some people are nice and quiet, and people are just in their tents, you know, minding their own business. If the rowdies get rowdy, then people tell them to shut up and go somewhere else. So that's what happens here. It's like a little community because we have our own little sections with, with people, which ones they put us in our groups. All the rowdies are down that way. Yeah, <laughs> rowdies are over that way, and we're in here. That's why I like it here. Is we don't have like mad neighbors like around us mm-hmm. like they do. But you're not never af- never afraid like you were at the SRO. No, because I have family right there to watch us, and right there, there our friends watch. And, you know, we have a group of friends. Oh, it's like you never know who's going to be around, right? 
And so you, you two are a couple, but you're worried you won't get an SRO together? Or yeah. a room together? Yeah. No, we're, we're probably not going to get one together. They're she's probably trying to separate. get me one that has a kitchen because, and a bathroom because I have rheumatoid arthritis and I need to have a bath all the time. So she's trying to get me a suite like that and be close to him so that he can take care of me. Though, so. All right, those are the voices of Jennifer and Eric. They are residents of that Oppenheimer Park, Tent City, talking to our own Claire Allen here. Do you see? Do you hear what one of the uh, what they said there? One of the things that jumped out at me is that this Wednesday is Welfare Wednesday. It's Check Day. That's the day they're being evicted. He said, "Well, we'll have a lot of people drunk and high down there after they get their checks on Wednesday, the day they're going to be evicted." What brainiac thought of that idea? That'd be a good day to evict them on on Check Day. Good grief. Let's keep talking about the uh, situation down at Oppenheimer Park now in the downtown east side. That tent city down there has been up and running for months. Estimated over 200 people living in tents down at Oppenheimer Park, but not for much longer. According to the Vancouver Park Board, they have issued a notice today instructing campers living in the park to pack up and move out by Wednesday evening. Wednesday 6 p.m. That's the eviction hour for the tent city at Oppenheimer Park, which has been growing in size in recent months. There's currently more than 100 tents in the park, estimated over 200 people living there. We've been talking to some of the people who live in the park today. CKNW contributors Claire Allen and Eric Chapman have been down to Oppenheimer Park today speaking to the residents who've been served eviction notices from the park board one person they spoke to was will he's a young man living in a tent in oppenheimer park while sitting in his tent he spoke to them about the current struggles he has with drugs mainly fentanyl and how he ended up living in a tent in oppenheimer park well i um i actually worked in i was a car salesman um for the last couple of years. Prior to that, I sold dope and just mm-hmm. done crime, gang kind of stuff. Um, and then uh, in, I've been clean for a few, two, two years. Before that, I was uh, using for about the same time and then same amount of clean time. Good for um, you on the two years, man. Yeah, I did that's two up. years, then yep. two years using, two years clean. Yep. All right, that's Will down in Oppenheimer Park today. While speaking with Will, the scene in the park was quite active, but also fairly calm. There was a police presence in the park today, but it seems like everyone was talking about the eviction notice, but taking it in stride. However, Will told Claire and Eric the park can be anything but calm at night. Well, yeah, there's always a lot of violence in the park. But oh, there is, okay. Yeah, do you, do you not know that? We've heard different stories. Yeah, Some you, people tell us yeah. it's quite peaceful here. Yeah. Those people are just people that don't don't know. They yeah. aren't involved in. In what the other stuff? Yeah, if you're involved, yeah. if you're not involved, you don't. Like I mean, this this week alone, there's been. Like they've been like, twice, th- packs of guys with like uh, rifles have come through and robbed people. Like cut cut a hole in one guy's tent over there and robbed them three SKS rifles. Um, like last month, thirty guys, a bunch of them had guns, came went to every single tent and tried to shut down people that did. For real. Yeah, yeah. Man. I yeah. Wow. So, they, I, they caught me in the past. Yeah, yeah. But I was like one of I was friends with one of them, and they he so let me pass us, through yeah. without taking anything from me. But yeah. um, oh, every every day there's at least like three, four fights. Really? Bear spray every day almost. Wow. Yeah, cool. so, but I got hit in the head with a sledgehammer in my sleep. Oh my but luckily, I, I I turned in my sleep. I as the air swing down, I happened to turn my head, so it hit me here. Um, so I have a really bad concussion from that. Uh, and then, so that's how I woke up. I see the guy coming again. So I fought with him off or whatever. Yeah. Um, barely. He was a lot stronger than I was, but I had, I guess, a lot of that, I don't know, gentle or Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. Um, so, Will, like, if it's, it sounds really, like, from everything you're saying, like, the super scary and dangerous and probably hard to get, go to sleep. You're always worried. Today, when they served the eviction notice, are you going to go into housing or what's your plan? I haven't, I, I don't really know. I've never been I've never been homeless before until this last uh, couple months. So um, I don't really know if I want to live in those. Um, I don't know. I need to yeah. I need to figure out what I got to do. Yeah, yeah, it's a big decision. 
All right, that is Will, one of the residents of the Oppenheimer Park Tent City, in conversation with our own Claire Allen and Eric Chapman at the park this morning. You heard him describe some of the violence down there. You heard him talk about how he got hit in the head with a hammer. Heard him talk about people with guns down there. I mean, you talk to people who are hardcore drug addicts on the streets of the city, you will hear terrible stories of violence and danger on the streets of the city and the shelters. And according to Will, including down at the Oppenheimer Park Tent City as well. But like you heard Claire say there, we've heard some different stories from people who live in the Tent City about what it's like down there at night. We had talked to some people earlier who said it's rather can be peaceful but then you heard will there uh, talk about if you're involved in any kind of i guess drug scene down there it can be anything but peaceful now during the conversation uh, with claire and eric will was separating out heroin on a piece of paper underneath the paper was the eviction notice from the park board telling him and other residents that they have until this Wednesday at 6 p.m. to vacate Oppenheimer Park. CKNW contributor Claire Allen asked him what his plans are for this Wednesday. Well, I don't really know. I, I'm not 100% sure whether or not um, whether or not they're even uh, going to really for sure do it. I just can't see there being that many available rooms. Are there? I don't know. I understand. Like A lot of people here are just... We have rights and this and that. Like, no, we don't have the right to occupy a park. Right. You know, like, it's like, imagine if, if another country did this, that would be an act of war kind of thing, right? Um, so, but I, I try to tell people things like that, but people don't, they don't really, there's a lot of really ignorant people here. Sounds like you've got a lot of sense, man. Mm. A little really bit, yeah. Does, yeah. Well, I mean, not that much if I'm doing nah. fentanyl and nah. selling dope in the park, but. Sense. All right, that's Will talking to our own Claire Allen and Eric Chapman this morning at Oppenheimer Park, 6 p.m. this Wednesday. Uh, that's the, the eviction hour for the residents of the tent city down there. And we've heard a lot of the voices down there at Oppenheimer Park on the show today. A lot of different perspectives, a lot of different type of experiences that people have had down there. Uh, one of the things that really jumped out at me in one of the earlier clips that we heard was uh, the fact that this Wednesday... Is is check day. It's social assistance check day, a.k.a. Welfare Wednesday. I'm not sure it's such a great idea to have eviction day on the same day as Welfare Wednesday when a lot of people would cash their check and get high or drunk down there. That could be a strategic kind of blunder by the city, in my opinion. Let's talk about the protests in Hong Kong now and the simultaneous demonstrations we saw over the weekend in Vancouver, in Hong Kong yesterday, more than a million people took to the streets to protest Chinese policies and call for greater freedoms in Hong Kong. Meanwhile, in Vancouver yesterday, there were dueling protests outside the Chinese embassy on Granville Street. A large number of people turned out to support the Hong Kong pro-democracy protesters, but an opposing group of pro-Beijing protesters also showed up to support the Chinese government and to condemn what they say is violence by the protesters in Hong Kong. Let's talk about this now with Ken Tung. He is the president of the Civic Education Society. He was at the rally yesterday supporting the Hong Kong protesters. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Ken, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Ken, Ken thanks for coming on. What, what do you hope to achieve with these, uh, these rallies in Vancouver? I am a proud Canadian living in Canada for 40 years. Uh, I have friends, good friends in Hong Kong. Officially, I have to tell people I do not have any relative in Hong Kong. I think anyone has relatives and uh, something that may endanger their, their situation or in China, I will say no. But in Vancouver, I'm a supporter. I attended a uh, number of uh, events that is supporting uh, Hong Kong people. Uh, since uh, early June, Hong Kong people are facing the legislature amendment that allows Hong Kong government to send anyone who are the suspect, who are charged by uh, Chinese government uh, right. on any, any crime. 
sending them to uh, to be judged uh, trial at the uh, China uh, court. Right. And many uh, Hong Kong people understand this will not receive a fair trial. The Hong Kong government said they saw the people protest, but they are carrying the second reading of the uh, legislature amendment. So a few days later, two million people came on the street. But after that, there are numerous of uh, protests happening in Hong Kong. So the tear gas, the uh, rubber bullet, baton, and we can see a lot of police uh, uh, brutality happen in the last eight weeks. Now, I think uh, what happened is Hong Kong come to the point that the government do not how to handle. Uh, one more important part is the executive, uh, uh, chief executive, uh, Carrie Lam. People definitely can observe and uh, know she's only a puppet of the uh, Chinese government, the Chinese regime uh, that is controlled. Now, Hong Kong has been promised one country, two systems for 50 years, maintain their freedom uh, for Hong Kong and also allow to have democracy, step-by-step election. And uh, now they are going to squeeze that. And it was stopped two years ago that it will stay this way. The Hong Kong chief executive, Carrie Lam, was elected by 777 vote out of 1,200 people who uh, elect, selected by the uh, regime. So you can see the democracy are all linked to favor China policy. Speaking to Ken Tung, he's one of the supporters of the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. He was at the rally in Vancouver yesterday. Ken, speaking of the uh, Chinese government, there was a, a group of, there was a counter-protest in Vancouver yesterday. Supporters of the Beijing government uh, came out to uh, offer uh, another view, supporting the Chinese government and, and their in their face-off with these protesters. What do you say to them? What do you say to these counter-protesters who were out in Vancouver yesterday supporting the Chinese government? Now, on Saturday, uh, uh, maybe thir- uh, 50 uh, young people want to organize a tell people about Hong Kong uh, event at the uh, Camp Broadway and Camby station, Sky Station. But uh, when uh, the pro-China group received it, they they actually ask all the supporters for these telling people, these uh, young people are helping Hong Kong to be independent. So this is the, the uh, news, that fake news that spread around, even spread around in China against Hong Kong people. Million people come up want to be independent. No one really want, uh, Hong Kong people don't want to be independent. They know the reality, but it is framed. So if you look at that, um, they came out, they sang Chinese uh, national anthem. Uh, they put a plaque, they said, anti-independent, do not split China. They were all, all uh, I would say, brainwashed to love so-called the China. They don't know the country and the Communist Party right now is supporting the regime. They because education in China is totally different from us. They do not have Facebook. They do not have YouTube. They do not have WhatsApp. They do not have, they only have their own state-controlled social media. You can see the brainwash. Hong Kong, more or less, is going to that direction. But okay. the people who protest on the street yesterday, they, are, they do not have the full picture. Ken, one more question for you. We've just got one minute left. Do you think Canada has been strong enough in standing up to support the protesters in Hong Kong? I appreciate our, our Minister Freeland speak out, but it's not enough. It's not strong enough. We have Canadians detained in China. We have to stand up, protect all the Canadian Chinese here who enjoy our freedom in Canada. We feel pressure from China influencing our Canadians here. I think we want our government to stand strong against China. Ken, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. All right, Ken Tong, he's a supporter of the pro-democracy demonstrators in Hong Kong. They have been out on the streets in Hong Kong for 11 weekends in a row. The pictures on the weekend of the over a million people on the streets just extraordinary. A lot of criticism of the Chinese response and the police and the way they've been handling uh, the situation there. You can bet that those 
protests are going to continue. It was very interesting as well to see those dueling protests right here in Vancouver as well, outside the Canadian, uh, the Chinese embassy. You ever tried to get a camping spot in British Columbia? It can be kind of a challenge to use the government's online reservation system, especially if you're going for a campsite at a popular provincial park. It can be difficult. I've been on that system before in the past, and I've just seen like campsites just get snapped up and you get blocked, you get locked out. A lot of other kind of challenges if you want to use our public park system, especially in the lower mainland, even if you're just going like for a barbecue or something or a family picnic can be tough. I mean, you have trouble getting parking. You can tough have difficulty getting a good spot. Really, really good article, I thought, on this on the front page of the Vancouver Province newspaper yesterday, my favorite newspaper. One of the people quoted in there is Chris Ludwig. He's the president of the BC Mountaineering Club, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hiya, Chris. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, that was an interesting article, I thought, in the province newspaper yesterday, and you're quoted in there. What, do you, what are your thoughts on uh, the BC Park system right here now? Do you think we're managing our parks uh, correctly? I think uh, parks is hugely under-resourced uh, and underfunded, so uh, I think they're very limited in what they can do. And I know, for instance, the Joffrey Lakes uh, issue, which has been in the media a lot lately, you know, the overcrowding there we see, of course, the parking chaos that's going on is consuming an inordinate, inordinate amount of resources from BC Park staff. So they're really kind of bare bones, and, of course, the demand is growing at double the rate in terms of hiking, the number of hikers is increasing at double uh, the rate of the population of GVRD. So it's it's uh, a huge problem. Okay, it almost sounds like what almost like we're a victim of our own success. Everybody wants to get outside and enjoy the beauty of our province, but if you get so many people, man, it can get pretty crowded, and people can, people are gonna have trouble finding a spot for themselves. It is, and also there is a lack of inventory uh, in terms of trail and camping inventory, um, and that, of course, you know, the promotion of the outdoor lifestyle, and obviously, you know, we're living in a more urban environment, so getting out and enjoying nature is good for our spiritual and mental well-being, but yeah. uh, at the same time, we're loving our places to death, um, and we've not made the hard choices and decisions to manage them and prepare for uh, this this current future, which is today, which was in many ways foreseeable. Yeah, do you think there's a, a lot of, tour, uh, is there a tourism component to this? Like we got a lot of people visiting our province, and which is great. I mean, we want the tourists to come here, but does it also lead to kind of overcrowding in some parks? Well, there is, and uh, certainly, you know, I, I'm involved in volunteer trail building. I'm a trail crew chief, so I'm out there with 20 or even 50 volunteers working on trails, and I do encounter uh, in the wilderness people from all around the world, and they're discovering, for instance, trails that we put in and work on from, like, Destination BC and different tourism, you know, sort of, and also online blogs, and, you know, so it's spread out there um, very quickly now, and especially in the age of social media, something that's a secret or an Instagram spot will blow up in the course of a month and everyone knows about it so that's part yeah. of it as well speaking of chris ludwig he's the president of the bc mountaineering club yeah i've, I've heard about that and, and the article in the the province newspaper yesterday got into that some you might have some popular spots like a you know a real popular swimming hole you know that people might find a perfect spot for a picnic or swimming or something like that man once it gets on facebook or something like that forget about it being private anymore it does. I mean, for instance, when we put in the Water Sprite Trail, um, there's this one place called the Prow, which is this rock that overlooks all the valley and all the glaciers are around. And, you know, once that got out on Instagram, it's like everyone has to stand on it or do a handstand on it. And, uh, you know, yeah. thousands and thousands of pictures of people doing that. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, the message I put out there is one of education, of collective responsibility, that these areas will all in this together. And if we abuse them, if we leave garbage, we damage them, and we are irresponsible in our hiking and our backcountry use, then we will face closures and restrictions and damage destroyed yeah. areas. Um, and that's that. no one wants that. Yeah, the Water Sprite Trail, that's up near Squamish, I think, right? It is, yes. It's 20 yeah. kilometers uh, east of Squamish. Right, um, right. That's yeah, something the club has put a lot of time and energy into managing cooperatively with uh, Ministry of Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations. And the thing is, is it's probably one of the first uh, sort of alpine, you know, open, beautiful hikes really put in in years um, and that's why the minute something opens up, it's an explosion of people, right? Um, but I have been very impressed with 
generally the responsibility, the lack of litter, the lack of damage, sort of the, the attitude has been quite good. And I think with parks, a lot of people assume that, oh, it's my tax dollars maintaining this area. So if I leave garbage or whatever, it's, you know, it's someone else is going to take care of it. Whereas the message is in the case of an area like Watersprite, this is us as volunteers doing it. It's not your tax dollars, but it's some person like yourself that has to clean it up and fix it. So maybe right. that attitude has helped. How about booking a campsite? Is that is that still problematic? I know that it was really difficult a few years ago. I think the government changed the online booking system a little bit, made it a little bit more equitable and give people a better better chance to book a, a campsite. But that can still can that still be tough, especially in a popular park? Well it is like say Alton Lakes, you know, where um, you know there's a set number of tent camping sites or platforms and uh, they book up really quickly, especially on weekends. Yeah. Although what I find often is during the week you know, like, for instance, I'll be up and working on a trail. I might see 200 people go by in a weekend. And then if I'm up there in the week uh, days, I might see four or six people. So yeah. it's often the weekend warrior thing, which is saturating areas. But the weeks themselves are fairly sparse. Okay. Would that be a good tip for them, for people? Let's say people are trying to think of, wow, I'd love to get away for a nice camping getaway here before the summer is over. Um, would that be, what sort of a tip or advice would you give to people to find a nice campsite? Well, that would be one. Certainly try it. I know it's not practical for a lot of people, but midweek certainly works. And there's also a lot of trails that don't have a lot of use just because they're not the Instagram, you know, the Joffrey Lakes, the, you know, the uh, Elfin Watersprite, or sorry, Watersprite and, uh, and say, uh, Garibaldi Lake. You know, there's many other uh, options out there. And you can learn about them through, you know, hiking guidebooks or joining one of the outdoor clubs. You know, the outdoor clubs like the BC Mountaineering Club go, go to hundreds of destinations, not just the same five. So. Yeah. What would you say? Um, would you say we need more? We need more parks. We need more campsites. We just like you said, we need more inventory. Is that what you said? Was that what you think? We need more inventory, um, yeah. um, but it's not it's not so entirely simple because when you're putting in inventory, it has to be compatible with wildlife. It has to be compatible with, you know, with the conservation aspects. You can't just throw a trail in anywhere. Um, and also there's the amount of resources. There's some right now, you know, the agencies like BC Parks and, and Flinrow Mountain, uh, so that's um, Ministry of Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations. Right. Our club, for instance, has, I think, half of their entire budget for the Sea to Sky in terms of trails. It's just a volunteer group, so they're, they're cash-starved. They don't have the manpower. Um, so what it you know would be nice to see is if a fraction of these tourism dollars, these billions of tourism dollars, were to be reinvested into, you know, into trail crews, volunteer trail crews, and also BC Parks. And, and I think we'd see a huge rate of return because, you know, the economic value is such that, say, someone goes to Squamish, they go to hike the Watersport Trail, Alpha Lakes Trail, they're buying gas, they're buying, they're eating in the restaurants after the hike, they're even staying overnight, they're spending a great deal of economic energy. Um, yeah, and I think right. that's not, that's really understated, um, the value of that. And I'd like to see some of that reinvested into, you know, the infrastructure that creates the experience for everyone. Chris, I think you guys do an awesome job there at the uh, BC Mountaineering Club. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. That is Chris Ludwig. He is the president of the BC Mountaineering Club.